So the disciples had just engaged in a debate with each other over this most senseless and irrational question. The question we read in verse 1 of chapter 18. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in their preposterous squabbling and bickering over this issue, which in that moment dominated their minds and affected their hearts, each one of the disciples tried their best to assert their own preeminence over the rest. And this heated clash puts on display for each and every one of us the depths to which even the best of men can sink when their pride is challenged. I mean, think about it. Imagine audibly insisting upon your own rank, your own status, your own importance over and against all those around you. Hopefully, we can just, all of us can see just how foolish such protests and such claims would sound if we went around announcing them to others on our own behalf. Look at me! And to be honest, I don't think any of us would really have faulted Jesus had he rebuked the disciples in some grand and spectacular fashion for their foolishness here. But Christ, gracious, wonderful, precious Christ, hearing the misguided and mindless question that had been posed to him by his disciples, used that question as a launching point for a prolonged discourse on the necessity of humility among all who would call themselves his disciples. You look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus answered the question of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven by calling to himself a child. And the word for child here describes a little child, a child six or under. At this age, a child was at the bottom of the social order. A child six and under in this culture had no rights had no status, could make no claims or appeals to greatness, they could make no demands of anyone, and they possessed no delusions about their situation. This is what Jesus calls on his disciples to recognize about themselves. No status, no claims to greatness, can make no demands, possess no delusions about their situation. At this time, children simply served as necessary within the household without complaint. The children knew their place. And Jesus placed that young child in the midst of the twelve disciples and in verse 3 said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So while the disciples spent time arguing about which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, assuming themselves to be the cream of the kingdom crop, that at least one of them would be named greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus turned the tables on them and asked them more pressing, asked them a more important question. Instead of arguing over which one of you is the greatest, you must first consider, you must first actually ask yourself a different question. Are you even in the kingdom at all? Because unless you turn, and the word here is in the passive, meaning unless you are turned unless you experience in your heart a wholesale change, or as Jesus put it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And those who are turned, those who are changed, those who are born again, these will reveal this newness 
by repenting of their proud, self-focused desire, their demands for greatness and status. However, if you continue in your smug, presumptuous, swollen-headed desire for superiority and eminence over others, listen to what Jesus said, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Instead of striving for importance, hear what Jesus said as Mark records about the same event in Mark 9.35. Jesus said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. And Luke records Jesus saying, He who is least among you all is the one who is great. And this is the main point of the object lesson. That when Jesus brought the child, the main point of the object lesson is this in 18 chapter 4 or chapter 18, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, by virtue of true conversion, of true salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in the true believer, whoever recognizes their spiritual poverty their sinfulness, their corruption before God. Whoever understands that they can do nothing, they can offer nothing, they can bring nothing to God that impresses Him or inclines His favor in their direction. Whoever recognizes that we are undeserving of His affection, we are undeserving of His love, we are undeserving of His mercy, and that the only hope that we have is simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ, such people will reveal this change by taking upon themselves the lowly, humble position of a child. We will reveal ourselves by recognizing that we are indeed nothing. We have no standing, no station, no superiority over others. And we simply refuse to grasp at, to cling to, to hold on to any delusions of our own greatness. And instead, we become servants as we imitate our Lord Jesus Christ, who, as he said, came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who is turned will see themselves as the lowest class. And that goes against everything our culture and our world will promote to you, doesn't it? The world wants you to see yourself as number one, numero uno. And Jesus said, you must become like a humble child. Recognize that you have no status, you have no rights, you can make no demands, you are no better than any other believer. And out of this, this is a freeing recognition, because out of this we can then joyfully commit ourselves to serving our fellow servants. As we do this then, and only then, do we begin living the life of greatness that the disciples asked Jesus about. Walking the path of humility and service with no thought of elevating oneself over and above others is to walk behind Jesus as one who is truly great in the kingdom of heaven. So in verses 1 to 4, Jesus laid down the command to humility and gave an object lesson to, the, to help us understand that command. And the rest of Matthew 18 hones in on how to put that childlike humility into practice. So what does it mean to serve? 
What does it mean to be the least? Well, what we will see today in our text is that practicing childlike humility, the childlike humility that ought to characterize the believer, the follower, the disciples of Je- the disciple of Jesus Christ, means that we possess an all-out and unqualified concern for one another's growth in holiness and obedience to Christ. We serve each other by possessing an all-out, unqualified concern for one another's growth in holiness and obedience to Christ. And the first step to such, of such a concern is declared in verse 5. Look at it. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name receives me. So the child in question, now Jesus kind of switches the metaphor here, right? He's not referring to the little child that is actually in their midst. The child represents those who have turned and humbled themselves like children. In other words, the child here represents the spiritual children of the Lord, believers. Whoever receives the lowly, humble believer for the sake of Christ, who receives them as his children, receives Christ himself. Whoever receives a word, this word here means welcomes and accepts as an honored guest. Whoever receives and accepts other believers as welcome and honored guests welcomes Christ himself. Now, I want you to think for a second about your own life. Think about when you are going to have someone come to your house. You're going to have welcome someone in for a, 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 a meal, or you're going to have someone over to entertain them. What lengths do you go to to prepare your house for their arrival? I know in my house, things are flying all over the place to get this house clean. The vacuum is all out, and the washcloths are all out, and the dishes are all getting done, and the meals are being prepared. It's an all-day affair to ensure that when the person that we're entertaining arrives, they know that they are honored and welcome in our home. Think about the lengths that you go to. Ladies, do you all clean your house like feverishly before entertaining people? Anyone? Yes, yes, yes. We put ourselves out to be hospitable for people that we invite to our home. I want you to take that mentality and multiply it by a million. This is how we welcome and honor our fellow believers. Whoever welcomes such a one because they belong to Christ and honors such a one because they belong to Christ rather than any other reason or consideration. They receive Christ. See, the human tendency is to go out of our way to do things for, to enter relationships with, and to go out of our way to do things for those who are wealthy, those who are influential, those with personalities that we enjoy, those who benefit us in some way. A few weeks ago, I was blessed to help with uh, running the votes through in the provincial election. I just wanted to see how it all worked. And people were coming through and we were putting their votes in until halfway through the day, a guy walked in who looked exactly like Robert Downey Jr. 
like dead ringer. And all of us were like, whoa, that guy looks like Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man was just in the house. But one of the team didn't see him and they weren't in, involved in our conversation. And so we were talking about it and we said, yeah, that guy looked like Robert Downey Jr. And she said, Robert Downey Jr. was here and she threw everything down. She didn't care about any of the people that had come before, but she threw everything down, pencils, papers, binders, everything, whap! And she was going to run out because she wanted to go and grab Robert Downey Jr. and give him a big hug in the parking lot. We had to tell her. No, he just looked a lot like Robert Downey Jr. And then she was like, oh boy, I was about to go crazy because it was Robert Downey Jr. That's how we should be treating all believers. Robert Downey Jr. is... No greater than any believer. I've never said Robert Downey Jr. so many times in a sermon before in my life. <laughs> Jesus here says, humble disciples welcome other disciples regardless of their earthly status. Regardless of their lack of earthly status. For the simple fact that Christ owns them as his children. Do you see how closely connected Jesus is with his little ones? with his believing children. See, no matter how lowly in the world's sight each and every single one of the little children are, no matter how lowly in the world's sight you are, no matter how high and influential in the world's sight you are, if you love Jesus, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how poor or rich you are. It doesn't matter how influential you are or you're, how influential you're not. What matters is this. The primary consideration, the main thing is that you belong to Jesus. Amen. I belong to Jesus. So who are we? Who are you? Who am I to treat another one of God's precious children with anything other than welcome and honor? Think about, think about it for a second. How would you respond? How do you respond? How have you responded to someone who wrongs your children? Do you respond happily? How does God respond to those who wrong his children? The great Puritan pastor William Gage, speaking on the subject of serving one another, penned these most insightful and penetrating words. It's a long quote, so just bear with me here. Quote, The service which we perform to one another in the fear of God is an evident and real demonstration of the respect we have for God. Our goodness adds nothing to God. He is so high above us, so perfect and complete in himself, that neither can we give to him nor he receive from us. But in his own place, he has placed our brother, like us, to whom we may do harm, or by our faithful service we may do much good, which gives God much honor. This shows the hypocrisy of those who make great pretense of praising God and yet are scornful and disdainful to their brethren and slothful to do any service to man. These people's religion is in vain. For many people in their houses and in the midst of the congregation frequently sing praise to God and perform other parts of God's outward worship, but towards one another are proud, stubborn, envious, unmerciful, unjust, slanderous, and, slanderous, and very opposed to doing any good service. 
Where no fear of God is, there will be no good submission to men. Our brethren on earth stand in his place, and the love we show to them, we show to him, and he accepts it as done to him. We are one with our fellow, end quote. We are one with our fellow, we are one in Christ Jesus with our fellow believers, regardless of who they are regardless of what their earthly status, rank, importance, or influence is. And this is what Paul meant when he wrote to the Galatian believers. As many, in Galatians chapter 3, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. There may be different earthly roles and stations and spheres in which we live and move in obedience to God while we're here, but when it comes to how you treat your fellow believer in the here and now, your earthly situation does not make any difference. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all together heirs according to the promise of Christ. And for that reason, one of the primary ways that we display the childlike humility that Jesus requires from us is to welcome one another, to accept one another, and to honor every one of our fellow heirs, every one of us who truly professes Jesus as Lord and Savior. For his sake, we honor and welcome one another as though we were welcoming and honoring Christ himself. You can see it in the text, right? Whoever receives such a child in my name does what? Receives me. The connection between how we treat other believers and how we treat Christ will only be strengthened later on in Matthew 25. Just flip over to Matthew 25 with me. Starting in verse 34, Jesus reveals what he will tell the sheep and what he will tell the goats on the day of judgment. Listen to what he says to the sheep, starting in verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And the same is said of the goats to whom Jesus will declare, starting in verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you see the inseparable link that Jesus makes 
between how we treat those whom he called the least of these my brothers and how we treat him. Did you see it? This alone ought to lead us to a greater commitment to loving our fellow believer, whoever they are, by helping them in their distresses and their trials and their difficulties, by encouraging them, exhorting them, and edifying them in our most holy faith, by rejoicing with those who rejoice, and by mourning with those who mourn, and by forgiving those who trespass against us, by protecting the name and the reputation of everyone that Christ owns as his whether we agree with them in every single particular or not, because listen, every violation we commit against a fellow believer is a violation we commit against Christ himself. And every act of love toward a fellow believer is an act of love to Christ himself. To receive the humble believer is to receive Christ To do good or ill to a humble believer is to do good or ill to Christ himself. Are we getting it? I want you to take a second here right now to consider your actions, your disposition, your words, your forgiveness of or bitterness against another believer for either real or perceived sins against you. I want you right now for a second to contemplate your concern over and your love for your fellow disciple and tell yourself the truth. How I treat my fellow believer is how I treat my Savior. And John, John will tell us, one who hates their brother who they can see cannot claim to love the Lord whom they have not yet seen. How should this impact our life together as believers? As Paul exhorted the Roman Christians in verse chapter 14, verse 9, he said, exhorted them to let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And again, in Romans 15, 7, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's a good thing to ponder and to contemplate. How has Christ welcomed you? And I'll tell you, with wide open arms. And again, in Philippians, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In all you do, in all you say to the believers around you, remember again, and I'm going to keep pounding this nail, that whatever you do and say to them, you do and say to Christ. Let that be the guide. Let that be the compass for your interactions with each other. Oh, how different our treatment of other Christians would be if we took this seriously, if we spoke and we responded to them as if Christ himself was standing in front of us. Not as an object of worship, but as those we honor with our words, with our deeds, and with our disposition. So the humble child of God will focus on other disciples' growth in holiness and obedience by welcoming them and honoring them in the name of Christ. And also, Christ will continue, as he said next, Not only will they focus on honoring them and welcoming them, but they will do all in their power to keep from becoming, being, 
or enticing another disciple into sin. Look at what he says in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Again, the little ones here in question are, as Jesus makes clear, those who believe in him. You see that, right? Any one of these little ones who believe in me, meaning believers, Christians. And for a culture like the one we live in, one that is fixated primarily on ourselves at and to the expense of everyone around us, and for those who've succumbed to the culture, been duped by the culture, ascribed to this societal value in culture, the word of Christ here constitutes for you a most fearsome warning. As Jesus will say in verse 7, the world affords enough temptation to sin on its own. The inevitable and unavoidable consequences of the world's corruption will bring about enough temptations. But for you and I, for anyone here who claims to follow Jesus, to add to another believer's already laborious and difficult war against sin, the flesh, and the devil by leading them, enticing them, promoting to them, or causing them, one of Christ's little one, to sin is so grave, so horrendous, so vulgar an act that one ought to prefer a most appalling and dreadful death to being the cause of another disciple's disobedience to the Lord. See, the image of fastening a millstone around the neck and being drowned in the deepest parts of the sea is drawn from the Roman world. It was one of the numerous modes of Roman execution. And for the Jew, this particular punishment was even more horrifying, was even more terrifying than crucifixion. So Jesus used this shocking and to the Jew, ghastly, sickening picture to make the point. Such a grim and frightful death is to be preferred over being an instrument that entices or leads or causes another believer to sin. Can you sense the gravity here? Can you sense the seriousness here and the weight with which Jesus speaks here? And this word for sin, scandalon, it means tempting another to sin, enticing another to disobedience, entrapping another or causing them or influencing them toward rebellion against the Lord, to trip them up so that they fall and in so falling endanger their souls and make them liable to the hell of fire. It means attracting or persuading a believer to breach or violate the commands of Christ. The picture is one of holding stones in your hand, seeing your fellow believer walking up the street and throwing the stones on the path so that they are hindered in their progress or they even trip and fall. An example of this hindering is found in Matthew 16. We looked at it a while back. You remember it, right? Jesus used the same word, scandalon, to describe Peter. Remember back in Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, when Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter was unable and unwilling to accept the notion of a suffering Messiah. 
as fixated because he was so fixated on status and rank and being the greatest in the kingdom. And so he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter was thinking about earthly glories while Jesus was thinking about seeking and saving the lost. Jesus came to save us from the penalties of sin, from the wrath of God. He came to save us from the curse and condemnation of the law, from the tyranny of Satan and the demonic realm, from the sting of death, from the power of the grave, from the torments of eternal damnation. He came to save his children from his sorry, from their sorry predicament at the direction of his Father. Jesus voluntarily took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, lived a perfect sinless life, died a sin-atoning death so that in him, when we believe in him, We will live eternally. But Peter tried to scatter stones in the road that Jesus was walking. He tried to keep Jesus from obeying the will of the Father, and so Jesus rebuked him, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance or a scandalon, a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this theme, this exhortation to followers of Christ to avoid being themselves hindrances and stumbling blocks to other believers persists and is repeated throughout the New Testament. Romans 14, 13. Let us decide never, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. And to the Corinthian church, speaking to them about their, the use of their liberties and their rights in Christ, Paul exhorted them too in 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And again, speaking about his own ministry practice, Paul wrote, we put no obstacle in anyone's way that no fault may be found with our ministry. Instead of obstacles, instead of stumbling blocks, instead of hindrances, what is the believer supposed to do? As the writer of Hebrews puts it in 10.24, we are to consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works. To live a life that causes little ones who believe in Jesus to sin reveals those who do such a thing to be more like the enemy than their supposed Savior. They imitate the serpent in the garden, luring Eve away from the Lord and to disobedience rather than stirring up your brother to love and good deeds. And if this is you, then you've got to seriously consider whether the Holy Spirit resides in you at all. This is why forgiveness, for example, and bitterness held against another believer is so serious. This is why, look at the rest of chapter 18, starting in verse 15 all the way to the end. Jesus will speak to this particular subject of unforgiveness because it is a scandal for a believer to remain in unforgiveness. It is serious because it is, it is a hindrance and an obstacle to both the professing believer who holds on to it and also to the person against whom you hold that unforgiveness. Against whom you remain bitter. It is scandal for the Christian to be unforgiving. And if it proves true that you are not a believer, 
The execution described by Jesus, that of having a millstone fastened around your neck and being drowned in the sea, can be considered a mercy in comparison to what awaits those who strive or entice or turn little ones away from obedience to Christ. To be one who places scandals and stumbling blocks in front of the children of God as they travel along the narrow road To commit such a heinous act reveals your true state as a hater of Christ and a hater of his people. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, one who displeases God and opposes all mankind. To call yourself a Christian but encourage believers to disobey God's word in any way. To call yourself a Christian and to speak to believers in permissive tones about sin and the things that God hates. To call yourself a Christian and then use your freedom in Christ to cause or encourage another believer to violate their Christian conscience is the, and therefore cause them to sin, because whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. To counsel a follower of Jesus with such commonplace things as, you know, don't, don't claim that on your taxes. Government doesn't need that. Your parents don't know what they're talking about. Why would you listen to them? The most important thing that you should do is make sure you're happy. It's okay, just break the law of the land. It's all right. Let's just, you know, let's be, let's do these. Let's, you know, this is a most grievous sin. In all its forms, it's a most grievous sin. And to call yourself a Christian and then argue for and promote and encourage Christ's little children to accept or celebrate, or ally with, or practice the accepted passions, perversions, corruptions, debaucheries of a culture that is characterized by darkened hearts and futile minds, a culture that is condemned and given up to the lusts of their hearts, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind by the Lord, a culture that is in need of repentance, not a culture that we look at with, with pride and with permiss- permissiveness, to encourage or promote or entice a believer to lie in any way, to cheat in any way, to steal in any way, to blaspheme in any way, to do anything other than to bring the Word of God to bear on any and every situation to those whom you talk to, it would be better for you to have a great millstone tied around your neck and for you to be drowned in the deepest parts of the ocean. So listen. If you are a believer, if you profess to be a follower of Christ, listen to me, you must be very careful when advising, when counseling, when speaking with your fellow believer. Always keeping this at the forefront of your mind, that what you say to them and what you say about them and the level to which you accept, welcome, and honor them, you welcome, honor, and accept Christ. And... A gruesome and horrifying physical death is to be preferred by you over leading the person, the little child, the Christian in front of you in any direction other than Jesus. Instead, we are to encourage our fellow servants to holiness and fan into flame their love for Jesus Christ above all things. One of the reasons it's so important that we persist in our labors to honor each other and keep from being the cause of another's stumbling is that the world we live in presents enough trouble and temptation on its own. Jesus said in verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. And the woe here envisions or pictures the hand of God's judgment raised. 
It's ready to slam down on the culture in judgment. Woe is a word of denunciation. Woe is a word of grief. Woe is a warning about the horrors of the sinful world and the judgments that await the falling of the Lord's arm. Woe to the world for all of the damage that comes about in the lives of the little ones as a result of all the stumbling blocks the world repeatedly and relentlessly scatters in front of the believer who tries to walk the narrow path of Christ. The world is untiring and determined to set traps for God's people. The world is untiring and determined to incite you to sin. One of the most subtle and yet most damaging methods is laboring to win the battle for our bodies and our minds. And this is why the Apostle Paul appealed to the Roman believers in Romans 12.1, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, we quite easily and quite willingly tend to present our bodies not to Christ, but to the world. To be carried along at and by the pleasures of the world. Are the mercies of God enough? Do they carry enough weight? Are we thankful enough for them to actually present our bodies to Him and live for Him as a living sacrifice? To live holy, acceptable lives, denying ourselves for His sake. This is our spiritual act of worship, said Paul. See, worship is not just about singing songs on Sunday morning, even though the word has been co-opted almost exclusively to refer to that single little thing. Worship is presenting ourselves to God as living sacrifices and actually living for Him each and every minute of each and every day. And Paul continued, not only do we offer our bodies, but look what he wrote next in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and pleasing. Whoever or whatever gains control of your mind will transform you and shape you into its image. And the world does a masterful job at inundating us with its views and with its corruptions to the degree that so many professing Christians don't look like Jesus at all. They look like the world. They don't reflect Jesus at all to the world, but instead they reflect and speak and act and look more like the world that we live in. So here's a test for you. Are there any parts of God's word that you are embarrassed by because they are an offense to the world? Are there times when the world looks normal to you and the Bible seems strange to you? The reason for this is that your mind has been conformed to the world, the ideals of the world, rather than the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, verses, verse 7. Meaning, the onslaught of temptations to sin as we live in a world that is corrupted is inevitable. It's unavoidable. They are a natural byproduct of living in a fallen world. And the word, the word used for temptations here is again the same word used in verse 6 for sin, stumbling blocks and hindrances to the life of the disciple. But woe to the one by whom temptation comes, verse 7. While it is the case that stumbling blocks in, the, in and from the world are inevitable, woe to the one who scatters them on the path. Woe to you, woe to anyone who misleads 
Woe to anyone who becomes an occasion for another's stumbling. Woe to you who will not zealously guard and protect other believers from falling into sin, who aren't exceedingly serious about not being numbered with the tempters. So in our all-out, unqualified concern for one another's growth in holiness and obedience to Christ, we fix our eyes on the ways in which we receive honor, we receive honor and welcome fellow believers. We do all in our power to keep from putting stumbling blocks in the path of our fellow believers by enticing, promoting sinful conduct. And finally this morning, we concern ourselves with our own personal holiness for both our own and our brother's sake. As he will say in 18a to 9, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So this is for our own sake, but also don't underestimate the impact that your holiness and your obedience and your model has on the believers around you. We must keep from becoming an object of others' stumbling by, becoming an, uh, by not allowing occasions for our own stumbling. Much of what Jesus has said up to this point speaks about how we live our lives so as to ensure the holiness of others. And with that being said, <clears throat> he now turns to each one of us and declares that you and I can't always and only ever look to and blame the world for your sinful conduct and decisions. We live in a culture that loves to pass the blame. You can't blame the person who's enticed you to sin. God will deal with them. You can't blame the person who promoted your sinful conduct into your ear. While these things don't make your sin any or make things any easier, and the Lord will deal justly with those who lead his little ones into sin, listen, you and I must also be on guard against our own sinful tendencies. And know this that when you sin, you did that. Not the enticer. Not the world around us, not even the devil tempting us. They were of no help. Sure, they fueled the fires of our flesh, but ultimately, we are the ones who committed the sin. And as followers of Christ, here's the good news. When we sin, our Savior makes it clear in Scripture that when we sin, when we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us. And He calls on us to be, who love Him to be on guard against the desires of the flesh, and let us always remember, again, here is a truth that all of us need to remember, there is no greater threat or enemy to your holiness, no greater threat or enemy to your growth in holiness than you. No one deceives you more than you deceive yourself. No one justifies your sin and the sins you love to you more than you do. No one spends as much time explaining away and legitimizing your sin than you do. Sins of bitterness, sins of anger, sins of unforgiveness, sins of sexual lust. And so Jesus here presents a stark reminder urging those who follow him as disciples to quit defending your sin. Instead, declare an all-out war against it. And note, in Matthew 5, Jesus here, in Matthew 5, Jesus spoke these words about cutting off hands and cutting out eyes and throwing them away, but he honed in on lustful thoughts and adulterous relations. But here in chapter 18, he repeats it, but he calls, he extends this, this warning to sin in all of its forms. Look at it again. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, 
Not to look lustfully, but to sin. And that word here is the same word again, used in verses 6 and 7. It's repeated. It again means to bring about your own stumbling so as to fall and cause your own undoing. When we practice or promote or find ourselves enticed by sin, we can both scandalize others, contributing to their collapse and fall, and scandalize ourselves so that we too are toppled and fall. And so in order to avoid such a travesty, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, tear it out, throw it away, because it would be better for you to enter life crippled or lame or one-eyed than to be thrown in the, in the eternal hell of fire with your whole body. And Jesus here is being hyperbolic. He's exaggerating the picture to make a very real and serious point. Because to actually rid our hands and our, rid ourselves of hands and of eyes to literally cut them off, tear them out, throw them away, wouldn't itself deal with the root issue, which is your heart. The imperative, the command here, deals with the necessity of making the tough, making the impossible decisions to do everything we can in the power of the Holy Spirit to put our sin to death, to wage an all-out war against it because our soul is so fixated on Christ and the glory that we can bring to Him as we obey and follow after Him in this life. The command of Christ here speaks to the dangers of living in settled sin. Because such sin puts us in grave danger. Jesus referred to hell twice in these verses, first calling it the eternal fire, meaning the everlasting, continuing on forever place of torment, the place where God himself pours out his own holy, just wrath upon those who held on to their sin for this life and in so doing rejected Christ. And again, he called it the hell of fire, meaning the final place of torment. After all are raised up and souls are reunited with their bodies and the final judgment takes place, all who chose sin over Christ will be cast into this place forever to suffer the just and righteous penalty of God for their sin. And in the same way that it is better to have a millstone fastened around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea than it is to promote or entice one of Christ's little ones to sin, it is better to cut off hands and tear out eyes if they are the cause of our sin than to be thrown into the eternal hell of fire. Instead, Jesus calls on all, of, all who would come after him to enter life. You see that in this text. To enter life, meaning to be conducted into the joys of eternity. To be with Christ where he is. To see him as he is. To spend eternity in his presence who is the great delight and joy of our souls. It is better to, to, to divest ourselves of anything and everything that might trip us up on the road to such a perfect and sublime reality. It is better for us to endure any and all of the world's scorn and shame and penalties and cancellations and torments and the rest to end up with Jesus forever in life than to give in to, walk in, recommend, urge, or support the sins of the world, the very sins that brought about the condemnation of the world, the very sins that necessitated the incarnation of Christ, the perfect life of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, and the death of Christ, our most wonderful Savior. True Christians fixing their eyes in the direction of the eternal state with Christ will take drastic measures in the here and now to kill the sin in their own life. And they will take extreme and excessive caution to keep themselves from being an occasion for sin in another believer's life. So much so that if your hands, your feet, your eyes, all of which represent that which is necessary and crucial to your life, 
the best of what you possess lead to these ends, we will part with all of it. No matter how difficult, no matter how the consequences, no matter how severe the measures we must take, however troublesome the measures might be, no matter how much ridicule you will endure for your commitment to Christ, the fight for holiness is more than worth it. The fight for your own holiness, the fight for your brother and sister's holiness is more than worth it. There is nothing like knowing your sin is forgiven. There is no greater, no higher joy, no more outstanding blessing than forgiveness and the promotion of forgiveness in a fellow believer. So do whatever it takes to achieve this end. Organize your life in such a way that the, priori- that the purity and spotlessness of Christ's bride, the church, is prioritized, even if it costs you some personal comforts. Even if it means you have to forgive that person that you have fooled yourself into thinking it's okay to remain bitter with. Because how much better would it be to worship and live with a forgiven community of faith, a holy community of faith, So let us not focus on what the spirit of the age is pushing. Relentless focus on self at the expense of both our own and our brother and sister's progress in holiness and obedience to Christ. But as those who have humbled themselves like little children, as those who recognize our own situation as undeserving people saved purely by the grace and the mercy of God, let us do all we can to promote increased holiness and spiritual growth in our fellow believers as we keep ourselves from being stumbling blocks to others and keep ourselves from becoming stumbling blocks to our very own selves. And all of this, to and for the glory of our Lord and perfect Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we welcome each other, we receive each other, and we honor each other. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you once again for the truth of your word. We praise you so much for giving your will to us in Scripture. And Lord, oftentimes what we learn in Scripture is, are things that we would never come to or conclude on our own because they go against our flesh and they go against our natural tendencies. And so thank you, Heavenly Father, for for the Lord Jesus Christ and and for everything he revealed to us during his life on earth. Thank you for warning us about the necessity of receiving one another and honoring one another. Thank you for warning us about not being a cause of sin in another person's life. Thank you for warning us about the necessity of holiness in our own life. And Lord, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in those who truly believe, who truly have turned to you in faith and trust, that you would give us the power to wage war against our own sin and to be supremely committed to the holiness of our fellow brothers. And we ask this all in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.